in a life for his redemptive purposes. Now, we can remember times in history, and the one I thought of first was, if you're not my age or a little younger, but you may have seen it in, I don't know, YouTube or wherever, the Challenger, Space Shuttle Challenger. I believe it was 1986. I was watching it live. 71 seconds after liftoff, we hear the command center say, go for throttle up. And it became a ball of fire and smoke in the sky. And the country was horrified, suddenly and without warning. TWA Flight 800 over the Atlantic Ocean outside of New York City exploded into thousands of pieces. And the witnesses said that the fiery pieces floated to the surface of the water. And when they investigated it, they said that the force of that explosion would be like running a car into a brick wall at 400 miles an hour. A suicide bomber in a marketplace in Iraq recently detonated his vest and killed dozens of people, similar to the Boston Marathon bombings. But you know, God will often intervene suddenly and dramatically to accomplish his redemptive purposes. The defining moment In the Old Testament is the exodus from Egypt. The children of Israel stand trapped with the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh and his minions coming from behind. And what do the people say? They said, Moses, why did you bring us out here in the desert to be slaughtered like animals? And Moses says to them, stand still and see the salvation the deliverance of God. And suddenly what? God made a way where there was no way. He opened the Red Sea and delivered them. And that deliverance foreshadowed the ultimate deliverance that was to come some 15 centuries later when shepherds were on a Bethlehem hillside and suddenly God... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Deliverer, who is Christ the Lord. One who can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And then after Christ was crucified and his body was in the tomb, the disciples were scared and scattered and fearful for their lives. And suddenly... God brought resurrection power to bear. And he delivered the deliverer. (laughs) He delivered his own son. I know a man who walked an aisle in a church when he was nine years old, gave his life to the Lord, and then he said some 40 years later he was in a service, and suddenly God broke into his heart with those dual graces of faith and repentance, and he said, that's when I was born again. And that was a surprise to all of his family and friends, but that's his testimony. We have a problem understanding the depth of our sin and the fullness of grace. We debate it and we rationalize about the relationship between God's sovereignty and our free will. I like Charles Spurgeon, the great Reformed Baptist pastor, who said, 
how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and our free will? He said, you don't have to reconcile friends. (laughs) I think it can be boiled down to basically two precepts. I am totally and utterly incapable. And God is totally, completely, thoroughly able to save and to deliver and to preserve us. And we all need deliverance. That's the bad news. The good news is our God is a deliverer. He can make a way where there is no way. He can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. I think deliverance is a good synonym for grace. Only those who are helpless and hopeless need deliverance. Let's see how Christ inaugurates his ministry here in Nazareth as the self-proclaimed Savior and Deliverer. And we'll see the trouble he gets into with the people because of his pronouncements. Luke 4, starting with verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were upon him, were fastened on him, is what the NIV says. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote the proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you have done in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was sent not to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Now listen to this. This is amazing. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But suddenly God, he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. It's true. It cleanses us. It helps us. It rebukes us. May we learn from it today by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, go ahead and answer that. That's all right. It's probably for me. You can just bring it up here. I'm a great fan of Pastor John MacArthur, great pastor, great commentator, uh, biblical scholar. 
a good friend of his was Jack Hayford, who was a charismatic pastor, different in his theology, but they were good friends. So John spoke, Pastor MacArthur spoke at a, at a, a, a building ceremony for him. And so people thought that he had become charismatic. And so the Full Gospel Businessmen's Association invited him to come to talk about his new experience. Well, he thought they had called him to give the other side of the story. He said it was the first time in his ministry he'd ever been bodily removed from the pulpit. <laughs> he was physically removed, and they called a place to prayer for him to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, at least their motive was prayer. You see, in this group in Nazareth, their motive was murder. Jesus proclaims release, and he's rejected. He preaches deliverance, and he's despised. He touches on sovereignty, and much like today, there was great hostility. Well, let's see how this happened. We see that Jesus came in the power of the Spirit. That's not really anything new, because everything Jesus did was in the power of the Spirit. You see, and you need to understand this, the focus of Jesus' ministry was always his Father. But the fulfillment of his ministry was the Holy Spirit. His focus was his Heavenly Father. But the fulfillment of it is the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that led him to the desert to be tempted led him to the cross to be tortured. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you and me and all believers today. So I guess we should do things in the power of the spirit as well. Jesus came back to his hometown in the power of the spirit, and he goes to the synagogue, which was his custom. That's rather important too, isn't it? It's his custom. And synagogues then were somewhat like church. I mean, they segregated the men and women didn't sit together and things like that, but it was worship as, as we would think of it commonly. So Jesus asked, is asked to speak, and he chooses the messianic passage from Isaiah 61. He reads about this anointed Messiah, this deliverer who is to come, who will proclaim the good news a real end times evangelist, if you will. He will set captives free, release the oppressed, heal the afflicted, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the year of jubilee when, when slaves are set free and debts are forgiven. But Jesus was announcing the dawn of a new day of salvation when sin debts are forgiven and when spiritual prisoners are set free. A new day of redemption. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. You see, in that day, they would read the scripture standing up, and then they would sit down to preach. Now, that would ruin most evangelists in our country today, and most preachers, for that matter. It was, what an intimate setting. Can you imagine that, if Jesus was sitting here, expounding on this passage? And the eyes of everyone were fastened upon him. Now their eyes were fastened upon him, not because of his looks, because Isaiah tells us there's nothing about Messiah that we should 
that there was no beauty or majesty about Messiah that we would be attracted to him. Nothing about his physical appearance. So I would say their, their eyes were fastened on him, but it was really their ears that were fastened on him to hear what he had to say. For you see, it was when he spoke. When he spoke. When he spoke, the winds and the waves obeyed. When he spoke, demons would flee. When he spoke, withered hands would strengthen and withered legs would straighten. When he spoke, fish would jump into fishermen's nets. And when he spoke, the dead would rise on their deathbeds. And when he spoke, sins were forgiven. For you see, the words Jesus spoke were sharper than a two-edged sword. The very word of God. Remember in John chapter 7, Jesus stood up on the last and greatest day of the feast, and he shouted, it said he shouted this, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Well, the Pharisees and the chief priests were so angry, they sent the temple guards to arrest him. And you remember what happened? The temple guards came back empty-handed. And when asked why they didn't bring him in, these who I would call pretty macho guys, they said no one ever spoke the way this man does. His words. Well, on this Sabbath in Nazareth, Jesus spoke and said that the Messianic scripture in Isaiah is fulfilled in your hearing. You can almost hear the gasp in the crowd, can't you? And it's Joseph's son. How can he be the chosen one? And he anticipates their demand for proof when he says, Physician, heal thyself. If you're the Messiah, let's see some miracles. You know, do some tricks for us. He had that very often in his ministry. Let's see your stuff. Show us what you can do. We've heard about you. And then he gives him a short primer on sovereignty in which he basically says, The miracles of God are not at your command. And the salvation of God is not at the will of man. Remember Elijah went outside of Israel, outside the people of God, to a Phoenician empire and the widow of Zarephath. And Elisha cleansed the prophet Naaman from Syria. Don't think because your parents and grandparents attend this synagogue that you're saved. Automatically. God will save whom he will save, and God will heal whom he will heal, and that includes Jews and Gentiles and everyone alike. Well, they were furious. Look at verse 20. They drove him out of town and were going to throw him off a cliff? I've heard of angry, violent responses to preaching, but that's pretty radical. Yet Jesus, now listen, walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Once again, God delivered the deliverer. And by the way, there's your miracle that they're calling for. I personally, I mean, this is not biblical, so don't take this. This is not worth anything. But I personally think the violent mob got so violent they started fighting among themselves. And just lost track of what was going on, and Jesus just walked away. Or 
It might have been like the Red Sea, and it just miraculously parted, and he walked through them. One of the two must have happened. And God often did this in the Old Testament, delivering people from delivering his people from catastrophic circumstances. I think of 2 Chronicles chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat gets word that a coalition of armies on the other side of the Dead Sea are coming for him and his kingdom. And he knows that he's no match for this Transjordanian bunch. In verse 3, we learn that he's alarmed, resolved to inquire of the Lord, and proclaimed a fast for the people. Listen to his closing, the close of his prayer. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. I've never seen that bumper sticker or that plaque anywhere, but it should be. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. That's a great seminar on leadership right there. The king instructs the people to fast and pray, seek the face of Jehovah, and then he prays in front of all of them, God, I don't know what to do. We're totally dependent on you. We're helpless and hopeless apart from you. You know, in times of progress and prosperity, we tend to forget that we're helpless and hopeless apart from Christ. Listen to these words from a former United States president. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. Abraham Lincoln, Thanksgiving Proclamation, 1863. You're not going to see much of that these days. But similar to King Jehoshaphat, if we go back to Second Chronicles, the Spirit of the Lord came upon the prophet and he said, listen, King Jehoshaphat, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. How many times do we hear that? How many times do we heed that? Tomorrow, march down against them. They'll be climbing up this mountain and this gorge and this desert. You will not have to fight this battle. But take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance of the Lord. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Just what Moses said to the people of God facing the Red Sea and Pharaoh behind them. Stand firm and see the deliverance of the Lord.
Stand still and watch God make a way where there is no way. Stand firm and watch him do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I think the church needs to hear that today. That's why I say a good synonym for grace is deliverance. Next, it says that all the people worship, and this is where they sent the choir out. Remember that? They sent the choir out in front of the army. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to pray. At least they didn't send women out. Sing to the Lord in the splendor of his holiness as they went out ahead of the army saying, Give thanks to the Lord. Well, God just confused the armies coming against them and they killed each other. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert, they saw only dead bodies laying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took them three days to collect it. That's amazing, isn't it? They didn't even fight a battle. They just picked up the booty from the battle. So what had Jehoshaphat done? King Jehoshaphat. He had prayed, he had fasted, called the people to do that. He humbled and humiliated himself in front of the people and called them to fast and pray. They prepared for battle and they went out and God delivered them. So in a sense, they did nothing. As far as the battle is concerned, they did nothing. It reminds me of a a true story that the late great radio personality Paul Harvey told about a cab driver in Chicago. He was at the end of his day, and he decides to pick up one last fare. It was a rather seedy character with a long trench coat on, and he asked to be taken to a location on the outskirts of town. And on the way, he has the cab driver stop, and he goes into the store and buys a six-pack of beer. And then as they reach an isolated part of town, the unthinkable happens. He feels this cold steel in the back of his neck. It's a gun. And the guy says, give me all your money or I'll kill you. So he gives him his money. And prior to that, the cabbie was having a good day because he had quite a bit of money on him. And the robber says, you drive away, and if I see your brake lights come on, I'll kill you. So the robber slammed the back door, and that cabbie took off, squealed his wheels, and just didn't stop for miles. But he heard this tremendous thud on the back of his cab. But he wasn't going to look around. He wasn't going to stop because he was afraid, you know. Well, when he gets a couple miles out of town, he stops, gets out of the cab, And there's the robber's trench coat in his back seat. The robber had actually slammed the door, caught his coat in it, thrown himself against the back of the cab. He reaches in the pocket, and there's all his money. He looks in the back seat, and there's a six-pack of beer. (laughs) So a few minutes earlier, he's a dead man who's been robbed, and now he's delivered from death to life, and all that was taken is restored. And not only is he delivered from death to life, and all that is taken is restored, but he gets a six-pack to boot. 
That's what happened to King Jehoshaphat and his people. Not only were they delivered and restored, but they got all the booty from a battle that they didn't even fight. And so, so too, I think God delivers us to use us, to restore the years the locusts have eaten, to give us gifts. Ephesians 4 says he led captivity captive. He fought the battle for us. And he gives gifts to men. And he rewards us that we might build his kingdom. God delivers us to use us. Remember that. God delivers us to use us. So what do we do? Much like Jehoshaphat, we do nothing. Well, we fast and pray and we seek his face and we prepare for battle and we even go out to battle. But the battle is his. Remember Jesus saying to Lazarus' sister Mary, she said, Jesus, he's been dead for four days. I think this may be the King James. By now he stinks. By now he stinks. Jesus, you're too late. She didn't realize that Jesus' entire mission was to deliver dead, stinky people. In the book, The Trivialization of God, Pastor Donna McCullough puts it this way about the raising of Lazarus. Do you now see what we have to do to be saved? All that is required of you is exactly what Lazarus did, which is exactly and only nothing. Martha spoke the whole truth, not only about Lazarus, but about every one of us in particular, and about the human race in general. Lord, by now we stink. We've been dead four days or 40 days, or in the case of that gentleman I told you about, 40 years. But now in Lazarus, you can see it's just that extreme condition that has always been our hope. That very prison, the doorway to our liberty. Because making things jump out of nothing is God's favorite act. Jesus came to raise the dead, not to improve the improvable or perfect the perfectible, but to raise the dead. We are all dead and he raises us. And without so much as a buy your leave... Just be a good corpse, and he does the rest. But that's true in all the Christian life, isn't it? It's all of grace. Charles Spurgeon has a book, All of Grace. All of life is all of grace. It's all about deliverance. And don't get me wrong, the king prepared for battle, and he went out to battle. But that was being a good corpse for him. It's not a matter of doing nothing, but understanding that apart from Christ and the power of his spirit, we are helpless. We stink. We need someone to make a way where there is no way. And if God's delivering power in your life appears to be hidden, let me read from a Puritan classic, The Christian in Complete Armor. Four ideas about that. One, is God working in other areas of your life? Two, is God postponing deliverance to grow your faith? Three, is your appeal for deliverance misdirected? And four, is God holding out until the last minute to work perseverance 
in your life. There's an old gospel song, God's an on-time God. Rarely early, but never late. The last one is what God did for this widow of Zarephath that Christ spoke about in his sermon. Elijah was sent to her during a, a famine and drought. And God said he would provide for the prophet. So Elijah goes outside of Israel to this Phoenician widow whom he finds gathering sticks. He asks for water, and while she's getting the water, he asks for a piece of bread. And to that request, she replies, this is 1 Kings 17, 12, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah tells her to make the meal and bring it to him, and he says God will provide for you throughout this drought. So the widow did what the prophet said, and God did what the prophet said. So Elijah stayed there for a period of time, and I can just see them getting up in the morning. Elijah and the widow and the little boy going over to the flour barrel and they peek in and there's more flour. I don't think it was ever full, maybe not even a day's worth, maybe just a meal's worth. But every day God provided. Every day he delivered them in a situation where there was no way. And what do you think they would say when they tiptoed over to that flour barrel and that oil of jug, I mean jug of oil. They wouldn't say, oh, what a great flour barrel. They would say, what a great God. What a great God. What a great deliverer. For you see, we are all the empty flour barrels. The Apostle Paul said it in 2 Corinthians. We have this treasure in jars of clay, in these empty flour barrels. Not to glorify them the flower barrels, just the opposite, to show that his all-surpassing power, that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You see, apart from Christ, we're empty. Apart from Christ, we stink. Apart from Christ, we gather a few sticks and build a fire and prepare a last meal eat it and die. So say, what are you preparing for? Are you preparing for a funeral or a resurrection? You see how deliverance contains all these elements of sin and grace and atonement, perseverance? God is a deliverer. The late preacher J. Vernon McGee, I don't know if you know him. He used to do the walk through the Bible. Yeah. He would say this, and I've gotten in trouble for saying this before, but I'm going to say it anyway. He would, he would say this, the Bible asks a question that even God can't answer. And then he would quote Hebrews 2, 3, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Who among us is prepared to deliver ourselves? 
Where do you go to find another deliverer? Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. And he did not come to improve the improvable or perfect the perfectible. He came to preach good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to raise the dead. In a massive conspiracy of grace, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have plotted to turn your life around. More accurately, to bring you from death to life, to restore the years the locusts have eaten, as the prophet Joel said. To gratuitously give you gifts, to use them in the building of the kingdom of God. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a deliverer, one who can make a way where there is no way, one who can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Let him do that. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your word. Your word is truth. And I pray if there's any here that does not know the Savior, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who was born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life and died a tortured death, who was buried and resurrected and now sits at the right hand of God and the soon-coming King and Judge of all mankind, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work in their hearts today and they might transfer their trust from themselves to the great Savior, King Jesus. Lord, and for all of us, help us to revere you and honor you and worship you as a deliverer. Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.